The Sight of an Investigation is a 30, about 30 minute long piece for voice and orchestra. And I move around inside the orchestra so I don't just stand in the traditional spot next to the conductor. And I wanted that very much just to sort of visually activate the orchestra. You get a very different sense of an orchestra when you get to move around inside it, you know, when you're not just sitting at the edge of it. I suppose you could say it deals with being alive at this point in history, both from my personal experience, what's going on on the sort of global level in terms of geopolitics. And I also have to say, I did think a lot about the orchestra itself and what's happening in Ireland and these different decisions that are being made or potentially being made about merging orchestras or getting rid of orchestras or shifting the control of orchestras under different remits. And one thing I think that's very sad is that We've had so many phenomenal players who left Ireland because, you know, back in the 90s, they felt there wasn't an option, you know, to stay in Ireland and study music. They went abroad, they played in all sorts of fantastic orchestras and they came back to Ireland, and brought that knowledge, brought that expertise with them. And now these sort of infrastructures are are sort of cracking a little bit. And that's very, very sad. And you're seeing positions in these orchestras that are left open and not filled and things like that. So I was very much thinking about everything from the precarity of an Amazon worker on the floor, you know, being rushed to to uh, fill orders through through to the precarity of freelance musicians and even musicians who get a gig in an orchestra not being sure if they're going to have a job. In terms of the the text in the piece, I try to be at times clear if that makes sense, you know, because if you have a voice in a piece and you're using text, you do have the opportunity to say some things clearly rather than falling back on, you know, sort of the semiotics of music and trying to be symbolic. So, for example, I have quotes threaded through the text of the piece. So, for example, like when Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, there was a point where in one of the many, many, many public apologies he's had to give about Facebook's behavior over the last, you know, years, where he said, it was a serious year every day I wore a tie, as if that was somehow a marker of him taking responsibility for the impact that his company has on the globe. And so that quote is in the piece. I sing that, that, that quote. I also sing, you know, quotes or I speak quotes from books about, about neoliberalism, about, you know, the sort of acceleration of, of global and how that affects that that affects workers as quotes about precarity. But there's also stuff that's incredibly playful because we also live in a time where we're talking about sending people to Mars for the first time. And, you know, the, the sort of the young generation come up coming up now, that will be very much part of their sort of dream of what the human race can do. So I'm also quoting from the NASA document where they set out their horizon goals for landings on Mars. So I try to be clear and pick little bits of pieces of things from everyday life, you know, and, and sew them in there sort of like a tapestry. One thing that affected me quite deeply when I was working on the piece was a friend of mine. Um, he had cancer and during the time that I was working on the piece, his cancer, he got a terminal diagnosis and he passed away. And the piece is dedicated to him. His name was Stephen Swift. I thought very much about that. It's very difficult for a lot of people being alive right now. But at the same time, the fact that the orchestra gets together and I get to stand there and sing with them, if I can't acknowledge that that's an amazing, wonderful gift and privilege and take some joy in it, then that's really a shame, you know, because we get so little time on this planet and 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 sort of being able to just acknowledge that is really, really important. So the piece sort of pivots between these two positions, I would say, the sort of the the trauma, the loss, the grief, 
And then at the same time, the sheer joy in being alive. Me trying to live in that space of uncertainty, I suppose it would be, I would never say I was a Buddhist, but I suppose I would say it's a very Buddhist stance that you try to live in the uncertainty. You live in the cognitive dissonance of the fact that on the one hand, things are terrifying, but on the one hand, there was people that you got to be here with and dance to Prince. The drone is coming in and they're smiling. The drone is coming in to take a picture and the investment bankers are smiling. I wrote a piece in 2016 uh, called Everything is Important and it was for myself with the Arditi Quartet. And during that time, I got to know Tim's writing a bit. I think it was Drew Daniel from Matmos recommended um, to check out Hyper Objects. You know, there were some passages in the book that struck me and that I liked very much. I'm not a student of philosophy, but I think with Tim's writing, when it when it's really functioning on like all cylinders firing, I feel like it opens up a sort of a space that I can dream inside of and think inside of. And so there was a festival in Denmark who brought Tim over so that we could have a sort of a conversation. Um, the, our Diddy and I would perform the piece and Tim and I would have a public conversation. And we hit it off. And at that time, this time project was beginning to slowly get off the ground with initial meetings and plannings. And, and so I thought Tim would be a great person to work on the project with. So it's been very interesting. I feel like over the last 18 months, the structure of my brain has been slowly changed. Um, and I mean that really very much so in that I've spent more time going to natural history museums than at any other point in my life. I've spent an awful lot of time just thinking about what is time, what is it in my brain, what is it in my phone. I've been to all sorts of different places to film, like the Isle of Wight, which is the number one site for dinosaur uh, bones in the UK. I went to the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington, which is where they have the UK's atomic clocks, and they let me film all the atomic clocks and make sound recordings with um, coil microphones of all the sounds the clocks were making and um, talked to lots of people there. I've been to Greenwich an awful lot, uh, just sort of thinking about about uh, astronomy and the British Empire and the longitude and everything like that. So it's been a very, very, very interesting project um, thinking about things in it really sort of letting it soak into my brain and and then making the piece. I should say I'm very proud that there's a pretty high, heavy Irish contingency in this in this production because uh, the four sort of principles are it's uh, Anya O'Dwyer, uh, Lee Patterson, MC Schmidt and myself. And then there's two Norwegian duos, Strife and Yonko and Vilden Inger, really wonderful yeah, young musicians uh, or younger musicians, I should say. Um, uh, but Una Monaghan, the composer and sound engineer, she's doing the sound design for it. And Aideen Cosgrove from Pan Pan is doing the lighting and the stage design. So I feel really happy I've uh, assembled a team of like awesome Irish ladies involved in it. The stage design that we have, it's almost like a very weird bent parallel universe royal institution in that the traditional tables that free improvisers always have have now been have been sort of reimagined as, you know, the Royal Institution uh, desks that the scientists stand on and uh, sorry, stand at. And uh, we have four musicians on the stage, four in the audience. We've electronic parts. So it's, it's a big sort of immersive sound. Um, but 
I should say a little bit, I really wanted to work with the musicians that we have because everybody's a very, very experienced free improviser. And I felt that there's sections in the piece which are completely precisely structured and then there's sections which are more molded. But ultimately, all musicians are extremely sensitive to time. They build their work in time. But there's something about free improvisers and the way that they've had to build things in real time together in the room, you know, alongside the audience, that that gives them a very special skill set that was very important to me to have so that we can have these sections which are completely precise, but we can also allow different things to happen within the room. Uh, quantum physicists, they often talk about time as like a variable that, you know, they they don't really care about whether it passes one way or the other. And the second law of thermodynamics, which says that entropy always has to increase, that's like the only thing that you can, that we can use to really tell us that there's an arrow of time and that that's something, that was the past and, you know, this is the present and that's the future. So uh, we do have heat sensitive camera trained on the audience so we can sort of tell what the level of entropy in the room is. <laughs> we can even sort of track that a little bit according to what we're doing. It's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, <laughs> you know, uh, from a lot of different people. But it, every project has a slightly different workflow depending on the people involved. So, for example, with with uh, working with Tim Morton, you know, over the last two years, every now and then we'd have a Skype and we'd chat and it might be about time or it might be about other things. And I would take a lot of notes because when Tim talks, he says a lot of crazy things and some of them are very beautiful. So I wanted to capture that. Um, I am also doing huge amount of research by myself, you know, which I'm pouring into. I pour into one huge file at a time and then every now and then I have it printed out. So I have like these 180 page books, which are my notes so that all my notes are in the same place. And I'm making recordings and I'm, you know, I'm filming things and taking pictures and going around and, and writing things down and just gathering huge amounts of material. And then at a certain point, it's my job as the director to sort of try and create a dramaturgy to try and look, well, what are the most salient themes? There's too much to talk about when it comes to time. It's too vast a subject. So what what are the things we want to talk about in this piece? We have to pick our things that we think are the really at the end of the day, maybe the three or five, you know, most salient points that that you want to make about something. And you just have to keep honing it down, having all this extra excess material so that if you need to if you need to sort of fill in this this hole in the plaster, you have the right putty. I think it's fun to call it an opera. Because I think it's provocative and it's it's sort of making a case for what an opera can be. Because if we say that only things which completely um, comply with the definition of opera, so therefore there's people acting on stage, singing in bel canto voices. If we say that's the only possible way of of making opera, surely that's limiting the art form. So I think it's, I, I definitely think Peter Meanwell, who uh, was sort of the lead commissioner, you know, in the from the beginning on this, he thought it was provocative also and important to stake a claim that that term can be used by other people as well. <laughs> <laughs> I really deeply believe 
that that everybody who's involved in music in the next 50 years is going to have to contend with AI. Maybe there will be composers who never write a note of music, you know, that that is is made by AI. But like, if you look at a sea, if you look at a room of composers, most of them have smartphones and smartphones contain neural chips and neural chips are training you know, doing training for AI, for Google or Apple or whoever. So everybody's involved in AI. It doesn't matter or not whether you ever sort of program a neural net. You're already involved in the global project that is AI. I read a beautiful article last year, like a Medium post, and the author, whose name I can't remember, was talking about the... um the sort of make of their flesh one great poem. I think it's this Walt Whitman quote. And he was saying, AI ultimately will be something that the human race does collectively because so many people are involved in it. Every time you log on to Facebook, every time you log on to Twitter, there's AI running to decide, are you going to see your cousin's baby picture or are you going to see a cat video, you know, and, and making decisions. So there's like very weak AI with bots, you know what I mean? And things running like that right up through strong, you know, stronger AI systems. So I, I really do strongly think that every composer is going to have to contend with this because it's, I, I think that the future of music is not about arguments about whether or not, you know, um, minimalism is the right style or, um, you know, should we just continue exploring extended techniques or is conceptualism the way forward? Or, you know, do you have to have music that develops in a, min in a modernist sense? I think those, those arguments are dead. They're over because the next big argument is what does music mean? You know, when increasingly we're going to have neural networks who can do it just as well as us or better. Now, I know those are contentious terms, just as well and better. We could spend two hours talking about those, but let me use them a little bit, a little bit uh, uh, flippantly in this context. So I do, I think about AI a lot. I'm very, very interested in it. Um, the project Ultrachunk, which was a co which was a commission from Case Foundation through Somerset House, um, and I did it with Memo Acton. It was a collaboration between myself and Memo Acton. And Memo is an artist and a technologist um, who built the neural networks, um, and I created all the data that was that was used to train the neural networks. So I really got a sense of how much work, how much data is necessary to train something. But I also got this sense of singing with a version of myself that was both me and not me. And what a new musical and psychological experience that could offer me. probably the last generation who gets to play with what our relationship to technology will be in a really deep way because most of the people I've talked to and I've talked to a lot of different people because I've met with people at universities and I also was I was uh, running I was curating a talk series at Somerset House called Sound Salon where I had a lot of technologists come along and talk and you know most of those people think that in the next 40 to 50 years it's going to be utterly transformed 
And what does it mean, you know, that really, as I, as I said, you know, composers are going to have to come to terms with the fact that, you know, if you're writing in a certain style, if a, if a algorithm or if, neuro, sorry, not an algorithm, if a neural net can like pump out a piece in that style, what does it mean that you choose to write in that style? What does it mean that you choose to write music yourself? You know, what does it mean, uh, like, will musicians who are at college now, are they going to have to retrain so that instead of writing film music, they're managing the AI systems that will write the film music? You know, because that is one of the areas that people in Hollywood are crazy for. Because if you can get, you know, uh, a neural net that's going to write that epic orchestral film music, you don't have to hire a composer anymore. And so much music is necessary for TV and movies and games in particular. You know, it's going to be much cheaper if you have AI systems. And there's already companies doing that here in London. There was a point where when we were doing Ultra Chunk, um, Memo said to me, how does it feel now that there's a code version of you that exists? And and I said to him, and I mentioned my friend Stephen, who passed away, you know, in regard to the orchestra piece, I said to him, you know, it's very strange, you know, to think like that there's this weird version of me. And at the same time, I know that it's not really me. You know, it's it's a version of Jenny sitting in front of a laptop recording data, you, you know, to, to feed this neural network in the same way that on social media, <laughs> we're just like a version of ourselves. We're not the real person on social media. So, so these... All of these experiences that I've had with AI, working not just with Memo Acton, but also data bots, they trained, you know, uh, they trained um, a neural network on recordings of my voice. They all cause me to really think about deep, deep things like what it is to be human, what it is to make art, how much of me making art, even without AI, is really me, how much of it is social ideas of what styles exist, you know, really digging down into some deep issues. Um, and, and I think that's, that's part of what it is to be alive right now. Oh.